0: You
1: ain't
0: heard nothing yet. Get around, that little there. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make it on an offer. You talking to me? Straight out of the I don't know who you are. Why, so sick. When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, yes. I'm better. He's the lion! Snap out of it! If call me Mr. Oh, boy's best friend, Mother. is my boy. You have no style. You're bark all day, little dog. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I'm recording this a smidge early because my dad's coming to town this weekend. I'm actually recording this about an hour before I have to go pick him up at the airport. Our yearly tradition, you know, except for the pandemic years, is to hang out on Oscars weekend, so that is what we're going to do. Speaking of which, if you're listening to this on release day, happy Oscar Sunday, or as my friends tend to call it, Caitlin's Super Bowl. It really is my Super Bowl, unless my team is in the Super Bowl, then the Super Bowl is my Super Bowl. If you want to watch the Oscars, and you should, because they need all the help they can get, let's be honest, in the United States, it is airing on ABC at 5.30 Pacific, 8.30 Eastern. So if you're planning on tuning in, that is when you should do it. I believe the red carpet starts around 3.30. We've got one movie theater movie review this week, and it's the last of this year's Best Picture nominees that I have yet to see. But I've seen them all now. And boy, did I go out with a. Because I saw Avatar The Way of Water last night. I didn't want to see it, but damn it, I am a completionist. I'm not going to lie. As my friends could tell you after I was ranting about it after I saw it last night, if I start saying all the things that I thought and said. To them, this episode would derail and become about that. Personally, I would much rather talk about Orson Welles failing more than James Cameron succeeding. What I will say is that James Cameron had over a decade to decide what he wanted to make the story of this film be. He had 10 years. First one came out in 2009. This movie, I think they started shooting in like 2017, 2018. He had A decade. And all he came up with, or all he could be bothered to come up with, rather, is the same as the last one, but this time water. And also this time, let's not bother with any of that pesky character development, because we know how to do cool stuff with computers. That's essentially what this movie was. How people managed to sit through this movie multiple times is beyond me. I don't want to yuck anybody's yum, but oh, that was not my yum at all. It's just it's eye candy and nothing more. I'm sorry if you liked it. Good for you. I'm glad you have a thing you like. I I can't. I don't want to see that again. Please. No, I'm not. I'm not. I won't. I'm an adult. I don't have to do things I don't want to. So with that in mind, um, I'm pretty sure I've done this every year. (laughs) I'm going to do the thing that, you know, most podcasts do and give my opinion about something. And for me, it's the Best Picture nominees. So from best to worst, in my opinion, not who I think is going to win, but just my personal opinion, this is my ranking. First, the Banshees of Inisherin*. then the Fablemans, All Quiet on the Western Front, Tar, Everything Everywhere All at Once, Women Talking, Top Gun Maverick, Triangle of Sadness, Elvis, and last but not least, Surprising No One, After What I Just Said, Avatar, The Way of Water. With that in mind, I think Everything Everywhere All at Once will win Best Picture, and I've made my peace with that. It's fine. I still stand by what I my initial opinion of it, which is it needed to be 20 minutes shorter because they ended the film twice with almost an identical monologue. I've only found one other person who concurs with me on that completely, so I know I'm in the minority there for people who do like that movie, but, you know, Green Book won four years ago, so anything could happen. Anyway, this week we're discussing Orson Welles's failed Hollywood debut, Heart of Darkness. Before we get started, big shout out to the University of Michigan's online archive of Orson Welles, as it saved my ass this week. There's a lot written to analyze the making of this film, but weirdly little was actually about what happened, and thankfully they had both, and an ample amount of it. I'm very grateful. With that, Let's take our blazes. It's showtime. I left in a German steamer, and she called at every port on the way. It was 30 days before I saw the mouth of the big river. The coast was the edge of a colossal jungle so dark green as to be almost black. The sun was fierce. The land seemed to glisten and drip with steam. Here and there, grayish-white specks showed up, clustered inside the white surf with a tin shed and a flagpole. And all around, jungle. We've discussed Orson Welles a tad on the podcast, specifically his run-ins with William Randolph Hearst, because of the making and eventual release of the film Citizen Kane. Before the release of that film in 1941, however, Wells had a different project on his mind. That project was Heart of Darkness, which would be based on Joseph Conrad's 1899 novella of the same name. If the title of that book sounds familiar, it's because that novella also served as the groundwork for a very famous film that came out 38 years after the release of Citizen Kane. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Orson Welles had started his professional career with radio gigs as well as on the stage in New York. For the stage work, this was specifically as a part of the Federal Theater Project, which was a part of the Works Progress Administration, which was stipulated in the New Deal which was the plan to get the U.S. out of the Great Depression. TLDR, the program, gave federal funding to theaters and producers so that they could make plays and other theatrical productions that would get stagehands and actors back to work. Wells joined the project in 1935, and the 20-year-old would supplement his federal stipend with his $1,500-a-week salary from his radio gigs to hire the best crews possible, which led to, by all accounts, revolutionary theater productions. By the time Wells turned 21, he was widely regarded as a prodigy. In 1937, Wells had made enough of a name for himself to open his own repertory theater, which he called the Mercury Theater Company. There, he would continue to get rave reviews for his innovative productions. The following year, so 1938, Wells allegedly scared the wits out of the entire nation with a radio production of H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds. According to legend, it was convincing enough to make people freak out about little green men invading New Jersey reports very widely about just how wide-reaching panic actually was, ranging from millions to hundreds to tens to nobody actually freaking out really, as the broadcast did not air live nationwide and it was announced beforehand. One thing was certainly obvious when the fictional broadcast had concluded, it was that Orson Welles could tell a freaking story. And Hollywood wanted that innovative storytelling mind for itself. Warner Brothers had tried to lure Wells West as early as 1936-1937, but he turned down the three scripts they'd sent him to potentially direct. Ultimately, it would be George Schaefer at RKO, during one of the studio's only financial stable eras, who enticed the actor-director to head out west to try his hand at the moving pictures. RKO gave Wells a two-picture deal. There are some sources that also claim it was three. Most of them said two, but just one another. Despite the fact that Wells had never made a movie, by some accounts he'd never even been on a film set. So basically, as green as one could possibly be. Also included in this already unheard-of deal was the fact that Wells would have full creative control over his films, and also—and this was the big one. He was going to get right a final cut, meaning the studio couldn't make him change anything if he didn't want to. The only thing he would need to get his films into production as part of this RKO deal was the studio's approval on story, and he had to ensure that the film's budget stayed under $500,000. Well, signed his 63-page golden ticket to Tinseltown in the summer of 1939 and left the stage behind him for the time being. Originally, he'd only planned to stay in Hollywood long enough to pay off his theater debts as his last two productions at Mercury had not done so great. But upon touring RKO, which was, again, by some accounts, the first time he stepped on a studio lot, Orson called the movie studio, quote, the greatest electric train set a boy ever had. Maybe there was something for him here after all. By this point in his life, Wells had, by several accounts, become the smartest person in pretty much any room he happened to be in. Despite that big brain, in Hollywood, he was a pariah. You see, Wells came from theater, live theater specifically, which Hollywood people had contempt for. The only thing that they hated more than someone who came from live theater was somebody who came from, you guessed it, radio. To boot, the dude had a smug personality and massive ego and didn't try to hide those either. When the intricacies of his RKO deal were announced publicly, Hollywood insiders and the trade papers went freaking off. They were pissed that this outsider was getting a deal that they weren't, and this bias formed a cloud over Wells’s film work that people never seemed to get past, certainly not in his lifetime. Settled in Hollywood in late July, early August 1939, it was thought by many that Wells would announce his intention to make a War of the Worlds film. This, of course, was to capitalize off his newfound popularity thanks to the radio broadcast. It was definitely the project RKO was anticipating him announcing wanting to make. Instead, Wells would spend the next five months of his life attempting to get an adaptation of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness off the ground. RKO reluctantly agreed to this, hoping it would make an exciting adventure picture, and the film went into pre-production. If you're unaware, Heart of Darkness, like I said earlier, is an 1899 novella which tells the story of Christopher Marlowe, a steamboat captain whose job was to transport ivory down the Congo. It is presumed the story was supposed to take place in the Congo, though the real location that the author had in mind is never mentioned in the book, is never revealed in the book. Through his journey, Marlowe develops an intense interest in investigating Kurtz, who was an ivory procurement agent who had apparently gone a quote-unquote native. Through his journey in search of Kurtz, Marlowe is shocked upon seeing what European traders have done to the natives. To this day, the novella is seen as a critique of the European colonial rule in Africa around this time. One thing Wells had going for him, or against him depending on how you look at it, when it came to attempting to adapt this project, was his familiarity with the source material. Not long after his War of the Worlds broadcast in 1938, Wells had also done a radio production of Heart of Darkness, which you heard a little bit of at the first break. In it, he was both Marlowe and Kurtz. In the film adaptation, Wells also planned to play both characters. Wells got to writing, and his first draft on the script was 800 double-spaced pages. I'm sure I don't need to tell you, but I will anyway, that that is way too goddamn long of a script for a motion picture. By November, he would have whittled it down to about 182 pages, at least that was the length of the one I was able to find. But to give you a point of reference, the average script for a movie, at least nowadays, is somewhere along the lines of 90 to 120 pages, so it was still quite long, despite being over 400% shorter than the original draft, if I did my math right. Also keep in mind that this was the first time Wells was writing a screenplay, so I guess there was going to be a little bit of a learning curve. Maybe not an 800-page script curve, but a curve nonetheless. And while we're on the topic of script, let's go into what exactly this dude had in mind for this film. There were some changes from the source material that he intended to make. Stylistically, as Marlowe sailed down the river, Wells wanted things to get increasingly uncivilized, decrepit, and more claustrophobic. Basically, the further away from port, the farther he and his crew would be from reality. Or at least a reality they knew. By journey's end, chaos would reign and the climax would include a huge fire at Kurtz's compound. For good measure, there would be a violent storm and hundreds of natives stampeding in terror. Six sections of waterways were planned to be constructed as outlined in Wells' notes for his quote, snake-shaped river. One major change from the novel to the script was to have the character of Kurtz essentially be modeled after Adolf Hitler. World War II kicked off just a month after Wells had come to Hollywood, and even though the U.S. was still a couple years away from joining, the Nazi fascist threat was weighing heavy on some people's minds, especially the very liberal Wells. Wells did not hide his intention to basically make Kurtz an allegory for Hitler, all but naming him when he, when he had Kurtz tell Marlowe in the script, quote, Everything I've done up here has been according to the method of my government. Everything. There's a man now in Europe trying to do what I've done in the jungle. He will fail. In his madness, he thinks he can't fail, but he will. As pre-production ramped up on Heart of Darkness, Wells hired an artist to create a book of rough sketches for what he'd had in mind for the film's design. Wells also scouted locations in Louisiana and South America for proper locales, but the studio said no to location shooting. Since he was denied the chance to shoot in a real jungle, Wells demanded that miniatures of the jungle be created and filmed for test shots as what Orson wanted to do with the camera had never been done on screen up until that point. In all, two models were commissioned early in the pre-production process. One was of Marlowe's boat and the other of Kurtz's compound base, what have you. The actual models that were built for this have been lost to time, but extensive photographs still exist. Wells' team made these miniatures to appear life-size when shot as well, a common practice in filmmaking until CGI really took off, though it is still around today. It's basically a small version of something very big, but it can be, because cameras are dumb, shot in such a way that the miniature looks like it's a full-sized place. It's way cheaper to build that tiny exterior and trick the camera than building a full-ass fake building, or building at all. It's just cheaper. As I touched on a second or two ago, Wells had his eye on technical innovations to tell this story, and he wanted to shatter conventional Hollywood storytelling in the process as well. These plans began with his scripted opening for Heart of Darkness, which is, even by modern standards, a little bit weird. The film would open with a totally black screen, with Wells announcing... Ladies and gentlemen, this is Orson Welles. Don't worry, there's just nothing to look at for a while. You can close your eyes if you want to, but please open them when I tell you to. What Welles was trying to achieve by doing this was to introduce the idea of the subjective camera. A.K.A. the camera acts as the eyes of a character. In this case, he would essentially be putting the audience in the body of Marlowe. The whole movie would be experienced from his POV. After that opening, Wells would appear on screen looking directly into the camera. His presence would fill the entire screen before he'd pull out a gun and point it at the audience. The gun would fire, and the screen would fade to black again, followed by footage of a prisoner being led to an electric chair. There would be a blur, another fade to black, suggesting the activation of the electric chair. Wells' voice would be heard again. Quote, ladies and gentlemen, there's no cause for alarm. This is only a motion picture. Eventually, he would state, quote, you're not going to see this picture. This picture is going to see you. Then an image of a human eyeball would fill the screen, he'd cut to clouds moving slowly over the sky, then to a person hitting a golf ball. The section would close with Wells saying, quote, I hope you get the idea. Then, and only then, would the actual story of Heart of Darkness begin. In short, the dude's experimental theater background was going to be on full display. Wells was planning on shooting the entire film in 165 long panning shots, which were done from the first person. The camera was going to be the eyes of Marlowe, and you'd only see the character in reflections or in the water throughout the film. The reason the script was so long is because of how detailed Wells was getting when it came to the intricacies of each shot. This, by the way, big no-no in modern screenwriting. Screenwriters do not call shots typically unless it's absolutely vital for how the story is told, and sometimes not even then, because those calls belong with the director in collaboration with the director of photography. Just as a little aside. All of this was coming from the mind of a 24-year-old who had never operated a movie camera or even been on a film set. At least by now he'd been on a backlot. I guess that's not nothing. But these camera shots, while innovative, made RKO very nervous, as nothing even remotely like this had ever been attempted before. Throughout this pre-production process, Wells hired a crew of research assistants to prepare an extensive research bible, which would in part go into investigating the current state of fascism. RKO's location scouts, set designers, and special effects personnel also went to work with the hope of shooting the film entirely on sound stages and on the studio backlot to keep production costs under or at the pre-agreed upon half-million-dollar budget. The 317-page bible was rediscovered in 2017 and is currently in a collection at the University of Michigan, which boasts an extensive database on Orson Welles's entire life and career. In addition to the crew he had hired slash been given, Wells made several drawings and sketches himself in the margins and on the back of the pages of the first draft of Heart of Darkness. Among them were images storyboarding out the proposed introduction of the film I described just now, including the explanation of how the POV camera techniques would work, at least in Wells's mind. Also included, which is also in the University of Michigan archives, were ideas for shooting one of Kurtz's speeches in the film, which Wells intended to resemble the Nuremberg rallies that took place in early Septembers of 1933 to 1939. During a production budget meeting that took place on December 14th, 1939, in an effort to save money, RKO's production team floated the idea of purchasing, quote, stock shots, known better today as stock footage, in hopes of cutting down the need for certain shots and therefore driving down the cost of production on the film. This was as common a practice back then as it is today, and a document labeled Movie Notes that the University of Michigan has in its archives documents what they'd been intending to purchase. It also kind of gives you an idea of what Orson had in mind, tonally speaking as to what this film was going to be. This included shots from 1927's Chang, 1932's Kongorilla, and 1935's Babuna, all three of which were known as ethnographic films, which is basically a fancy word for a documentary-style film depicting POC cultures, specifically non-Western cultures, that were photographed and produced by white people. Additionally, shots were planned to be pulled from the fictional Sanders of the River from 1935 and 1939's The Four Feathers. Wells planned to use these film shots of lush jungles, rushing rivers, exotic animals, and African native peoples. Basically shots that could not be created in a soundstage convincingly. In the end, there were a few major things that stood between Wells and Heart of Darkness getting made, and the hurdles they created would prove too much for him to overcome. Like I mentioned earlier, on September 1st, 1939, Nazi Germany invaded Poland, and World War II kicked off shortly after. So much of the work being done on this film at this stage was done so in the shadow of the early days of World War II. Europe, basically being engulfed in a world war, meant that distribution to European theaters was going to be drastically cut down, which meant that the box office had been cut off at the knees. RKO didn't think they could recoup its investment in Heart of Darkness without the more sophisticated European moviegoers. They knew Wells wasn't going to appeal to everyone's sensibilities stateside. In the face of the war, RKO cut the budget of Heart of Darkness in half. Wells had gotten them to shell out a million dollars, but it had been cut back to the original $500,000 after the war broke out. Wells had soldiered on, as I've told you, and he finished the final draft of the script on November 19th, 1939. He also got the approval of Hollywood censorship officials in the Hayes office. In the case of this film he couldn't point the gun at the audience he could not depict any biracial relationships yes that was a rule and he was not be allowed to show any lady boobs With all of that in place, shooting was scheduled to begin in March of 1940. But when hitting that elusive half-a-million-dollar budget proved too difficult to help pay for the extra costs for Heart of Darkness, Wells agreed to direct the film The Smiler with a Knife, a cloak-and-dagger film based on an imagined coup attempt by the British Nazi Party. Orson would direct the film for freebies, but he would get a back-end of the box office. Despite all this wheeling and dealing and all the work that was put in and even a proposed shooting date and the film was pretty much cast, Heart of Darkness was shut down in late 1939, most sources say like late December. The official reason given was the fact that Wells could not shave off an additional fifty dollars to $75,000 off of the budget. However, this ultimately being used as the official excuse for the film's cancellation may have also been to conceal the studio's fears over the overtly political messages that Wells wanted to inject into the film. America was officially neutral in the early days of World War II, though FDR was funneling funds and equipment to Britain through the Lend-Lease Act. The studio was twitchy about taking an anti-Hitler, anti-fascism stance, which is baffling to someone who learned history in the American school system because they make it seem like America's stance was boo Hitler from pretty much the word go. And that was not really the case. They were just kind of like, maybe if we leave it alone, it'll just work their own shit out and we won't have to get involved. Like, yeah, it's it was very much have your cake eat it, too. It's 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 it was disappointing to learn that. With Heart of Darkness dead in the water, Wells began casting The Smiler with a Knife at the end of 1939, dude did not waste any time. Just one problem, he didn't have money to pay anybody because he'd spent all his budget that RKO had given him on Heart of Darkness. 1939 became 1940, and production on an Orson Welles film had yet to begin. He was already supposed to have completely finished a film and had yet to even get one fully into production. This led The Hollywood Reporter to claim that, quote, they're laying bets over on the RKO lot that the Orson Welles deal will end up without Orson ever doing a picture there. It was around this time that Orson dropped The Smiler Project, and the following year, Orson Welles's Hollywood debut, Citizen Kane, would hit theaters. Because of the failure of getting Heart of Darkness off the ground and the abandonment of Smiler, Citizen Kane became Welles's first film. It is generally regarded as the greatest film ever made, while Heart of Darkness has been seen by many as the greatest film never made. Over the years, adaptations of Heart of Darkness have been produced to varying degrees of intention and success. In 1958, CBS aired a 90-minute loose adaptation of the novella starring Boris Karloff and featuring Eartha Kitt as part of the Playhouse 90 lineup, which was a drama anthology series. Of course, the best-known adaptation of Heart of Darkness is a very loose one, which came out in 1979 and is better known as Apocalypse Now, which was of course directed by Francis Ford Coppola. The shoot would be unmitigated chaos. See my April 17, 2022 episode on the making of that film for more details. But at the end of it, there would be, at last, a major motion picture adaptation Of Heart of Darkness. Instead of the Congo or vaguely Africa, the film would be set in Vietnam during the Vietnam War, instead of sometime during the turn of the last century, and Kurtz was changed from an ivory tradesman to a colonel that has gone rogue. A more direct adaptation of the novel was produced in 1993, starring Tim Roth and John Malkovich, and it aired on TNT, which is an American television channel. Also, apparently, the 2019 atrocity that was Ad Astra, apparently that film is loosely based on Heart of Darkness as well, but that's a super loose adaptation. It takes place in space, so it kind of goes without saying, but in case you didn't know that movie, that's what that movie is. It's the Brad Pitt one. Also, I really hate that movie, but again, I'm not ranting on movies I don't like today. I won't do it. Orson's second film for RKO would be The Magnificent Ambersons, which was its own special kind of hell for Orson. According to legend, a witch doctor who was supposed to have a part in the film would put a curse on Wells by sticking a red-threaded steel needle through the script after Wells told him that money had run out. Wells was canned from RKO in 1942 after Nelson Rockefeller left RKO's board of directors, leading to a regime change that saw the only other person in power at RKO on Wells' side, George Schaefer, resigning. Soon after, Wells got the official boot, RKO took over Amberson's, drastically changing the film in the process, and all the while they accused Wells of going to South America to waste the studio's money. That's where that film was shot. Later that year, when RKO began promoting its new corporate motto, quote, Showmanship in place of genius, a new deal at RKO, Wells was a smart guy. He knew it was a dig at him specifically. From that point on, Wells' film career was a perpetual uphill climb. Even after his death in 1985, legal disputes over his films have raged almost continuously, meaning much of his work remains unseen to this day. His last finished film, The Other Side of the Wind, wasn't released until 2018, 33 years after his death. But both of those stories are tales for another time. The river, sleepless, crowded with memories of men and ships that it's spawned to the rest of home or to the battles of the sea. Hunters for gold and pursuers of fame. What greatness has not flowed on the ebb of that river into the mystery of an unknown Earth? The dreams of men, the seed of commonwealth, the germs of empires. that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterboxed account, which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode, and every episode starting with January of this year. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. If you're an Apple podcast listener, please leave me a very nice review. I need to get that number up so people will want to listen to me. It's very, very helpful. I very much appreciate it. Thank you in advance. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the buy me a coffee where you buy me a coffee. Tonight, I am drinking Do- Diet Dr. Pepper, which I got from McDonald's because I have no food in the house because I've been busy. And I'm trying to stay awake because I have to go pick up my father at some point. His He was supposed to... Already technically be here, but his flight is delayed. He hasn't even left the homeland, so God only knows when I'm going to go pick his ass up. So I need some caffeine and it's <laughs> nine o'clock at night. Um. So yeah, if you want to do that, very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we're discussing a failed adaptation of the sci-fi classic Dune. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.